You're now listening to episode 109 of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here, we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Thomas Costelli here today with Kevin Jerry, EVP at Cost Irrigation Services INC, or simply CSSI Inc. Kevin spoke at our first ever Tax and Legal Summit and is a nationally recognized speaker and expert on cost irrigation, tangible property regulations, and the real estate professional status. In today's episode, we discuss the tangible property regulations, including safe harbors, partial asset dispositions, how they intertwine with cost irrigation studies, as well as the real estate professional status, common misconceptions, and much more. Hey, Kevin, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Would you be able to give our listeners a little information on your background and how you got involved with real estate and cost segregation? Yeah, sure. Happy to. Thank you for having me. Um, I, um, I, I, I didn't really start my career in real estate taxation. I was actually uh, 180 degrees opposite. I was a salesperson for Fortune 500 companies like Hewlett Packard and then kind of stumbled on tax about 10 or 12 years ago and just kind of fell in love with it. Um, and so I immersed myself in it, got my master's degree in, uh, in real estate taxation, and then I actually was focused on cost segregation and then the tangible property regulations, which came out in 2015, kind of really lit, lit me up. And so uh, I immersed myself, found the uh, foremost authority on the tangible property regulations. His name is Eric Wallace, and Eric and I became friends. We worked on several very, very large projects. And, and it, it kind of dawned on me that how cost segregation and the tangible property regulations really do work well together. And um, so that's what I've been doing for the last five years is focusing on cost segregation, but also how the uh, TPRs really interact with that and, and preclude cost segregation. And uh, so that's kind of what I've been doing. I've, I've done um, many, many large projects with Eric and I. And we, um, you know, we, we really have made a difference in a, a lot of uh, not only CPAs, but building owners and investors in their understanding of the regulations, which are very much in their favor. Absolutely. You know, it, 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 speaking of the TPRs, um, you know, they did come out, you know, a few years back, as you had mentioned, and uh, they made significant changes to the treatment uh, of the costs associated when acquiring, maintaining and improving and disposing of tangible property, which is of course, you know, a big deal for real estate investors. And there's a lot there. Would you, would you be able to point out maybe the top, you know, two or three most impactful, uh, takeaways for real estate investors and in, in, introduced in that, uh, in that bill? Yeah, sure. Be, be ha- happy to. So, um, I would think the, um, you know, some of the, the top, um, I guess the, the top issues or opportunities that come up that very, very few owners or investors have even have even heard of is of the fact that um, it, on a depreciation schedule or on a on a building, if any um, expenditures you know are, are on that schedule that um, let's say it's it's a and, and can be deemed a repair, you can actually go back, create a negative 41A adjustment, and get those off of your schedule. And I, I think a lot of 
CPAs tend to ignore that and think, you know what, if I go back and I and there's like a roof repair, let's say for $100,000 that if, done, if was done today could be expensed. I don't want to go back. I don't want to scrub the schedules. I don't want to get that off because it's going to create uh, it's going to create red flags or um, possibly an audit risk or whatever, but there is so many opportunities that I see every day of expenditures that were done 15, 20 years ago that can be scrubbed off the schedule. And a lot of times there may not be a basis left, but remember when you, you know, when you take a, an expenditure that's being depreciated and now you expense it, you have no recapture on the sale, you know, when, when you sell your building. And even though there may not be a, a huge opportunity and maybe the uh, maybe the expenditure is fully depreciated, but that doesn't mean the benefit's not there because when, when the building is sold, the basis is increased and the less capital gains you pay. In fact, I was working with a CPA out of Indianapolis and we actually um, took, a, took an owner of four or five um, multifamily properties and we took her from a, I think a 20% capital gains rate down to zero. We got our capital gains down to, you know, under 78,000 just because we scrubbed the schedule and got items off that would have dropped her basis and increased her capital gains. And we were able to really, um, you know, you know really get, get that schedule down to where it would be. The other, the other part that, that jumps out at me is um, a lot of, um, a lot of CPAs feel that the, the, the TPRs are optional. Well, cost segregation is totally optional. You don't want to do it. You want to, you want to overpay your taxes. You know, fine. The IRS isn't going to, you know, send you any letters. But these are not optional. These are these these are the law, and if you don't follow them um, in the future, you will be out of compliance. The IRS can disallow future depreciation because the um, the income could be misstated, and that the, the um, you know I, I kind of point fingers at the AICPA sometimes, but they did a really poor job in in really getting the information out. So they are very much in the taxpayers' benefit. They can help them. When they now and when they sell their building, but also it's the carrot and the stick. You know, the, the carrot is to be able to take advantage of these regulations. The stick is if you don't, then the IRS could come down on you. Um, you know, with, with penalties and interest. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely, absolutely, and that's why here at the Real Estate CPA, we make sure to always uh, we take the tangible property regulations very seriously in both our advisory engagements as well as when we're preparing the tax returns for our clients because we understand how, you know, how important this is. You know, and there's a few other items that kind of came up in the tangible property regulations, some safe harbors um, that actually help out, uh, help out investors a lot. One of them being the de minimis safe harbor, which allows uh, investors to uh, essentially expense, to your point before, expense items that are under $2,500 per invoice line item. Um, Would you have any, what's your take on the de minimis safe harbor and how, and how have you seen it help, uh, help investors? Yeah, the, the, the minimus is is, uh, is kind of a low-hanging fruit. You know, every all CPAs have software now, and the de minimis is is one of the safe harbors that you know most of them will will take advantage of. Um, remember that that twenty-five hundred dollars does not have to stay at twenty-five hundred dollars. If you're a large corporation and your average expenditure is you know ten thousand um, dollars, you know the the um, onus is on you to prove that. That your your that that ten thousand dollars is actually a very small expenditure. So that twenty five hundred dollars is just kind of thrown out there. But if you uh, if your expenditures are typically well over 
that number, you can you can raise that de minimis safe harbor to whatever you want. Uh, the ones that are really ignored is the small taxpayer safe harbor. And so if um, in my example of my uh, CPA in Indianapolis and her clients, she owns several multifamily properties of apartment complexes with, you know, 10, 11 buildings on that complex. So what the small taxpayer safe harbor is, and it's designed as an administrative convenience by the, you know, by, by the uh, service because they don't really want to put a, an onus and a burden on small taxpayers is you can take um, the lesser of 2% or $10,000 for each of those buildings and you can expense whatever you want. So every year you would elect into it and you would have uh, the lesser of 2% or 10% for each of those buildings in the complex. But, you know, you start doing, you know, replacing windows and, and, um, and, and doors or as tenants move out, you have to replace carpeting, you know, you've got that, you've got that safe harbor that you can use in each of those buildings. But the, by far the most misunderstood is routine maintenance safe harbor. And this is, this is nothing new. The regulations are, you know, are, are really nothing, nothing, you know, catastrophically new. They just take some of the old regulations that uh, if you could call an expenditure or repair, you would, you would always be able to expense it. And if you were doing something um, routinely to keep your your building or asset in its everyday operating condition that could always be expensed but the routine maintenance says that if you uh, if you're doing any kind of routine maintenance on on your building that's going to be done again in 10 years and the interesting thing is you don't even have to do it in 10 years you just have the have to have the intent of doing it in 10 years you know it could be a two hundred thousand dollar expenditure and as long as you're keeping your building or component in its normal everyday operating condition, you can, you can expense that. And all you have to do is, um, you don't even have to do a 3115. You don't have to do a change of method of accounting. You don't have to do an annual election. You're already, the investor is already deemed to be following this. You just need to uh, attach something to your tax return saying, hey, I'm going to be doing this again in 10 years based on my experience, based on the, uh, the, the component's life or the warranty and, and, and you, you can expense that. And I've, I've really yet to see any tax professional really utilize that the way it, it, it was intended. But that is such low-hanging fruit. It's so easy. And um, it could mean a, a world of difference, especially now, um, that um, you know, with, with COVID, to be able to actually, you can go back in time and use routine maintenance safe harbor. That's the only safe harbor you can go back with. So the safe harbors are a phenomenal opportunity, but my gosh, they are, they are being ignored, except for de minimis. They're, they're, the other two are just, in my opinion, being, being ignored by 80 to 90% of the tax professionals out there. No, I 100%. I mean, I would I would agree with that statement. And and kind of just drilling into the the routine maintenance safe harbor for a second, you know, or would you say that it's would you say it's fair to say that, you know, if say you own an apartment building and you know if people people you know live in apartment buildings for a handful of years, they might move out, and you have to go ahead and turn the unit when you go in there and you have to replace the carpeting or the flooring or or the windows or, you know, any number of things that would be routinely replaced during a unit turn, would you consider that to be under the routine maintenance safe harbor? Yeah, that, that's one of the things. The routine maintenance safe harbor is, is very, very broad. Um, and uh, again, it's designed to keep something in its everyday, you know, operating condition. Now with your example, and that's a really good example because it does kind of open up the rest of the regulations beyond the safe harbor. So let's say you own a multifamily family 
uh, apartment complex with four, uh, four, four rentals and one person moves out, the regulations actually say beyond the safe harbor than 33% of your building is being impacted. And if you have four renters and you, know, you just take out one, then that's 25%. So anything less than 33%, if you're a landlord, can be expensed. So even if the Ruchi, if the safe harbors don't apply, there are there are other ways to um, to be able to expense those um, those expenditures um, in and above the safe harbors. So the the example you used is is a good one, and, and it really does kind of open things up. So as long as you know you're not making the interior you know materially better. Or if let's say an HVAC unit every six or seven years it has to have a major service, and you do that service and you're not making it better, it's routine maintenance. But even if you um, even even if you don't fall under the routine maintenance, there are you know two or three other ways to be able to still expense that. The biggest one is the 33 percent rule. Exactly. No, I, I, you know, that, that's, that's an excellent point. And uh, basically, I think you might have cut out there for a second, but basically what you had said was that if, any, if you're doing any you know, repairs or maintenance or any improvements that are under 33% of, of the entire property, basically, you could just expense that rather than having to, to capitalize that. Um, yep, that's exactly right. Uh, so, uh, something else uh, that's in the TPRs is the partial asset asset dispositions, and I know this plays a key role with with some considerations with cost irrigation. Uh, would you be able to just give us a quick overview of what a partial asset asset disposition is and why it's so beneficial for for investors? Yeah, I would, and that's a, that's a key point. And again, this is another aspect of the tangible property regulations that. You know, most CPAs they they miss. So let's say you're uh, you've got a building which is the asset, and you want, you're doing a, a renovation, and you're taking a portion of that asset and you're disposing it. Let's say you're you know renovating and throwing out drywall or roof or electrical or what a carpeting whatever. Well, what you throw out may not have a value to the owner or investor. They just want to get it out of there. But from a tax standpoint, it, it's part of the asset. The so the asset has a basis, and what you dispose of is a portion of that basis. And from a tax standpoint, you can take a one-time expense in the year it was done and actually you know, take a one-time expense and have a write-down of all the garbage that you got rid of. So yeah, anything that goes in the dumpster actually has a value from a tax standpoint. Now, somebody's got to put a value on it, and you're you know, your, your CPA is not able to put a value on, you know, how much drywall and electrical and plumbing and everything that was disposed of. But that's what an engineering firm like ours would do. Where, where this is missed is, um, is, is CPAs don't understand that they can't really put a value on the basis that was disposed of without a cost degradation study. And, um, and, and so what happens is if it's not done in the year that uh, these assets were disposed of in the calendar year, it's gone forever. And um, I, I see very, very few investors taking advantage of, um, of, a, of a, when they dispose of an asset to actually take a write down on the, on the adjusted basis of that asset. The other portion of that is um, under these regulations, um, the removal costs can be expensed. So if, if you are doing any kind of renovations or have done in 19, 
if, uh, if I always tell, um, tell clients, you know, get your general contractor to separate the cost of removal and the cost of the new asset coming in. And they're not going to like that because they make a lot of money on the, on the disposal and removal costs. So they may not want to disclose that to you, but you're the boss, you're the client. You can tell them to separate it any way you want. Um, so we've got like, if you are doing a renovation and disposing of a portion of your building, um, you can expense everything that was thrown in the dumpster and also the, the, you can expense the cost of removal. You don't have to capitalize that. And that's, um, that is missed. And, and I'm not just guessing at the percentages, but probably 95% of the time. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I would have to agree. I mean, we see this type of stuff coming from other CPAs all the time. Uh, people always uh, you know, kind of missing out on these opportunities. And it's always something we we try to point out to our clients here. And that kind of brings up a question related to cost irrigation. And you know, we, we've gotten a few different answers from you know different professionals in the cost irrigation space about this. But you know, when is the ideal time to have a cost irrigation study performed because I, I think to to your point, you know, if you're going to be doing a major renovation, um, you might want to identify the 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 you know the 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 cost breakdown of some of these items you're disposing before you make these improvements. Um, but we we've also heard that some people say that you know you should go ahead and make all your improvements and then get the cost irrigation study performed. So I guess my question really is, you know, when's the best time to have this done? Is it at the time of acquisition or uh, after the renovations have been formed, or is there like no true right answer for that question? Yeah, you've actually asked kind of two different questions. When should you get a cost segregation done? I would say get a cost segregation done when you need it the most. You know, when, when you need a get out of jail free, when you've got a large tax liability or you're having a great year, and your taxes, you know, you're in a 37% tax bracket, get your cost segregation not then done then. It's, it's, it's pure timing. As far as the renovation, um, if you have had a cost segregation done, um, I would get the cost segregation firm involved immediately so that um, you know, send them the AIA construction document, tell them what your plans are so that um, they may be able to take uh, to a site survey, which is a fancy name of just taking pictures and, and uh, to be able to document what assets were disposed of and then a new one coming in, you know, they can cost segregate that again. So uh, to get a, a cost seg done whenever you really need it the most, that's, that's when I would say to do it. As far as um, if you are doing major renovations and you haven't had a cost seg done, you absolutely have to get it done. If you have one already, then keep your cost seg company involved and take pictures and memorialize everything that you may need in case it's ever questioned. No, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. So thank you. Thank you for that answer. And uh, kind of something else that's involved with cost irrigation studies. Um, and I know you also, I think you're, I believe you're an expert on this as well. I've seen some of the CPEs you've had out there. Um, is the real estate professional status. And, you know, of course, a lot of people want to achieve the real estate professional status so that when they run a cost irrigation study, to your point, when they need it, uh, that those losses can actually offset their, their active or, or non-passive income. And, uh, we, you know, we work with a lot of different people out there and there's a lot of misconceptions on what, what actually qualifies towards, towards the hourly requirements for this, for, for the real estate professional status. And you know, would you mind if we got your, your take on some of these questions we have out there for this? No, I, I'd be, I'd be happy to, you know, I did a CPE about a year ago 
and it was uh, re-recorded, and I think there were 15,000 <laughs> attendees. This is not a new law. Yeah, this has been around for 20 So misunderstood. And uh, when I was in grad school, you know, we went over over 500 cases on the real estate professional and where, you know, where, um, you know, clients and, and building owners got it wrong. And, um, you know, they, they, they kind of skate by and, and, and think that, well, you know, I, I, I do this, you know, partially full time or I own, I, I own 10 properties or I own expensive properties. So I am a real estate professional and the IRS wins. I think 299 out of 300 times. So if you have any specific questions, I'm more than happy to answer those. If you just want my, my take for a couple minutes on the requirement to actually become a real estate professional, we can go down that road too. Well, well, if, if we could, uh, do you think it'd be all right if we, if we got your take on it, then I just asked, I have like maybe two or three questions, uh, specific questions on, on what qualifies. Sure. Yeah. Go ahead. All right. So, uh, you know, one of the questions, you know, we, we have, uh, is, um, you know, does, does education count like time spent, like a, a lot of people come to us and they want to qualify, uh, they want to count their time listening to podcasts or books or, uh, attending, uh, seminars towards the real estate professional status. And, uh, do you, do you have a, do you have an opinion on that one way or another? I just, um, I just go by court cases and that absolutely does not qualify. And the same as if you're researching, you know, cheaper mortgages or cheaper debt or meeting with a, a, you know, a bank on restructuring your debt or, you know, doing your financials, none of that qualifies. Um, and, and that is a, that, that's a, that's a great question because I would say that's probably the second or third most common misconceptions is that I can, um, you know, all of the time I spend, you know, managing the financial side of my, my property or, or, um, going to seminars counts, and it absolutely does not. And, and the courts are very, very clear on that. Yeah, absolutely. And then an, another question, kind of related to the research. You know, um, you know, we, we're also kind of we're also under the impression that time spent researching properties on the on the MLS or on or or just you know in general researching properties that you may acquire that time also doesn't count as well. No, that that does not now. You know, that's an interesting scenario because under the tangible property regulations, you can um, you you can expense that time. That is uh, that time researching um, if you want to buy a property or not. Actually, you know, is uh, is something that that does not have to be capitalized. But on a real estate professional status, no, that 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 does not absolutely does not count. Understood. Understood. So, you know, all, you know, all that being said, the, the one thing I, the one thing I always try to make clear to people who want to qualify for the real estate professional status is that, you know, the entire reason from at least my understanding, this was put in place in the first place was to stop people who just dabble in real estate, you know, part-time from being able just to maximum, you know, just take all these, all the depreciation expense, you know, you know, that creates a loss, you know, against their non-passive income and to actually qualify as a real estate professional, you need to actually become a real estate professional and it's not it's not it's not just something you can go read a few books on or or, or kind of like 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 i said dabble in uh so I, I guess what would be your take on what uh what what someone needs to do to qualify you know in in, in general as a real estate professional yeah and and i i love the way you frame that question is uh you know so many clients will uh, will call me and ask me well how do i become a real estate professional and i don't mean to be flipping it's like well 
become a real estate professional. You know, you have to, to be a real estate professional, actually be a real estate for a living. So the, um, the, the criteria, is, criteria is actually pretty clear. You know, first of all, you have to have a real property trader business. And if you have rental properties, that, that's good. The second step is you've got to spend at least 750 hours managing the property, not doing research, uh, but actually managing. And the interesting thing is, you know, commuting time and drive time does count. So if you're shoveling snow or fixing a toilet or fixing a roof or whatever, or hiring a contractor and being on site, that, all that counts, but it's got to be 750 hours. But the, the, the tough one is the 50% rule. So in addition to uh, the 750 hours, you must spend at least 50% of your personal service time um, managing your rentals. And um, the, uh, you know, the, the example that the IRS uses is, is they were trying to stop tax shelters where a doctor, you know, would uh, have his doctor practice and own some rentals and through depreciation and, you know, non-cash expenses like that, he would be able to offset his doctor income. And that's in, that was a tax shelter. So all tax shelters went away in 1986. So, um, and then after that, and, and this is where the, the IRS will really get you is you have to materially participate in each rental. So the first step is got to be in a real property trader business. And if you own rentals, that's good. The second step is you have to spend at least managing your rentals. The third step is you can't, you really can't have another W2 job or another job that's non-real estate related and spend 50% of your hours, you know, managing that rental. But the fourth step is materially participating. And as you know, that's, it's pretty easy to materially participate in, um, in, in really any, um, you know, in any business, it's a lot easier than the 750 hour rule. But the, um, the, the regulations say you've got to materially participate in each one. So um, there, there, I think there's 10 or 11 you know, different ways to materially participate. But unless you can prove you materially participate in each one, the IRS will flag it and, and, and your real estate professional status will be thrown out. But what you can do is you can aggregate all of your rentals for step four, where you put a statement to the IRS saying I'm under uh, the real estate professional, I'm aggregating all rentals for material improvement, material participation. And, and then that way you just have to materially participate in all of them together. And, and, and I'm, I'm thinking like 10 to 15% of the cases out there are from, from um, uh, clients or, or investors who own buildings. They meet the 750 hour rule. They meet the 50% rule, but their CPA forgot to put the statement on their uh, tax return. And now the IRS is, is saying, okay, tell me how you, materially participate you spend a hundred hours on each one is are you spending more hours than anybody else on each property and unless you hit them all the IRS will deny that so those are the four steps and that's why it's so it's so misunderstood because you have you've got the 750 hour rule and then uh, a step two and then step four you have the material participation rule everybody thinks that's the same or they get them mixed up or get the numbers mixed up and then from there, the IRS has easy pickups. You know, I, absolutely, and I and I and I thank you for clearing a lot of that up because there's a lot of people who are just coming to us and just and just are, are just they're very strongly under the belief that education counts. And you know, I just I we we tell them we tell them we tell them they just that they don't they don't want to they don't want to take no for an answer. And uh, yeah, like I said, I just I thank you for clearing that up. Um, so 
you know, and I know, I know a lot of our clients have used CSSI for, for cost segregation studies, and you do have a link that will, we will drop down in the show notes for anybody who wants a free analysis. Would you be able to talk a little bit more about uh, what they would get if they would, you know, what happens after they would go ahead and fill out that link? Yeah, it's, um, it, it's, it's, it's a link to, um, to get us the information on your property, what kind of property it was when it was put in service. But um, it, it's going to go to me personally, and I'm going to look at this depreciation schedule. And first of all, under the TPRs, I'm going to look for any expenditure that can be expensed and, um, under the TPRs and get that off of the schedule. And then what's remaining, we will, um, we will calculate the, uh, the accelerated uh, depreciation lives for five years and 15 years. The five years is really anything inside the building. Uh, the 15 years is all your land improvements. We'll do a calculation on that, and it will give you a cash flow analysis of um, what this, the, uh, the tax savings would be or the, or the tax deferral would be, and um, along with our flat fee, and then it's up to, you know, you and your your CPA, whether this makes sense or not, whether, again, you know, the real estate professional status plays such a huge role. You know, it's, um, well, it, it may not be, you may not be in a 37% tax category. You may be in, you may have a, uh, just be a passive passive investor and, uh, you know, our, our depreciation would offset your passive income. So we're going to take all that into consideration. I may um, actually pick up the phone and, and call the uh, the person who put the, uh, put their, uh, their numbers in or their information in and just get a, you know, kind of a lay of the land, you know, what's your, your tax bracket? Is it active versus passive? Um, and then get some clarification on maybe some line items that we can we think we can expense based on the TPRs. And then from there, it just becomes easy. Our, our tax people will give an analysis on what the tax deferral would be, what the savings would be for the TPRs, and what our costs are. And then it's just a matter, again, of timing. Does it make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, we thank you for that link. Again, everybody who's listening, that will be in the show notes. Um, so, you know, Kevin, it's been great having you on today. If, if our listeners, you know, wanted to get in touch with you directly or wanted to otherwise learn about CSSI, what would be the best way for them to do so? If they don't, if they don't mind, I'm old school, Thomas, it's uh, just pick up the phone and call me. You know, um, my, I think my number's in the show notes, or if you want, I can give it to you right now. Um, email is, is fine. It's J-E-R-R-Y-K at C-O-S-T-S-E-G-S-E-R-V.com. I hate that email address. It's so complicated. Nobody gets it right. So I just say, you know, pick, pick up the phone, call me, or you can even text me and say, hey, you know, can you call me tomorrow at 3 o'clock? Our conversations last five minutes, but it'll really um, help me understand the uh, your your listener's situation instead of just sending a, a, a blanket you know, analysis that, that really doesn't take advantage of all, all the facts that are there. So uh, will you have my phone number in the uh, show notes, Tom? Yeah, absolutely. We're going to go ahead and drop it in the show notes. Everything's going to be down there. But if you want to go ahead, and give it out here on the air. That's uh, that that works as well. Make sure everybody has it. Oh, more, more than happy to. Thank you for the opportunity. It's area code 502-216-5941. I'll say that again, 502 502- Two one six five nine four one, and uh, I'm in Phoenix, Arizona, where it's 120 degrees right now. So um, just you know, take uh, you know, just note that I'm on Western time, but I'm usually on my phone seven days a week, 24 seven. 
Absolutely. You know, you know, Kevin, thanks again for coming on. It's been amazing. Thank you for clearing up some of these common misconceptions out here. Uh, people, people are under, um, and like I said, everything's to be in the show notes and we're looking forward to putting this out there. No, thank you. Thank you. I love explaining these things and, uh, you guys are, you guys have been a great partner to us. And, you know, if you ever want, uh, you know, to have me on again, just tell me what you want me to talk about it. I'm more than happy. To, to jump on. I, I, I'd love talking to you guys. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes and with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.